Hi, this is Sean Fenske, Editor-in-Chief of Medical Product Outsourcing Magazine. I'm back once again for an episode of Mike on MedTech. Joining me as always, President of Vascular Sciences, Mike Drews. Mike, how you doing? I'm well, thank you, Sean. Great. So today we're going to look at uh, a recent announcement, or uh, it was published as a letter from the FDA, specifically from Scott Gottlieb and Jeff Shuren, uh, and it was with regard to the valuation of materials that were uh, being used in implantable or insert, insertable uh, medical devices. Uh, they're looking to address uh, safety questions about these materials. Uh, it is a topic that we've, that Mike and I have discussed in previous podcasts, and Mike has explained that there is no regulatory pathway. So it was kind of interesting to see that the FDA was addressing this issue. Um, so, Mike, if you would just start by uh, maybe giving a brief overview of what the announcement was, what this letter was from the FDA, from Scott and Jeff, uh, with regard to the evaluation of materials. Sure, sure, Sean. I, uh, sorry, sure, Sean. Sorry, uh, I'd be happy to do exactly that. Uh, just as a reminder to uh, you and your audience, um, this is a topic that's uh, near and dear to my heart. Uh, I happen to be a subject matter expert for FDA in a few different areas, one of them being biomaterials. And another thing I wanted to just remind everybody, you mentioned it a moment ago, uh, FDA does not regulate materials per se, at least not directly, they regulate that the devices that, uh, that um, are, are made up of those materials. So uh, there is no um, way to get a material itself cleared or approved. You have to get the device cleared or approved, and then kind of along with it comes the material. But specifically with regard to this announcement, um, I just want to remind uh, everybody, uh, and this is one of the things that uh, Scott Gottlieb says, is that the vast majority of patients that are implanted with our medical devices do not undergo any adverse reactions, adverse events. However, a small but regrettably growing number of uh, people um, do have uh, some sort of a biological response from the device, specifically the material, because of either a biocompatibility issue that manifests itself in immune in a immune response or something like that, and that's what we're that's what they're talking about here. Regrettably, Sean, in terms of the root cause, you know, as a as a biomedical engineer, I'm always thinking about the root cause. Uh, I think one of the main reasons why. FDA is talking about these kinds of problems. It's more fallout of uh, things that you and I have talked about in the past from the Bleeding Edge documentary from Netflix last summer, as well as the implant files last fall and so on. Uh, so one could easily ask the question, if it weren't for the negative press coming, uh, you know, associated with our industry, would we be talking about such things. A um, couple of other things to, to think about as we get started here, Sean. Uh, in, as you know, there's been a number of proposed changes to regulation, specifically around the 510K and post-market surveillance, but there is no um, proposed changes specifically for biomaterials and biocompatibility. As many in your audience know, the um, current guidance based on ISO 10993, uh, Biological Evaluation of Medical Devices. That guidance was finalized, quote unquote, 
back in 2016. And by the way, if anybody thinks that final that guidance is final, then please give me some of whatever it is that you're smoking, because all <laughs> guidance, including this one, is a work in progress. So that guidance will st- will be will be changed, um, no question about it. As we as we learn more and as we as we continue to evolve as an industry, but simply put. Uh, FDA is looking at materials and devices that have a troublesome track record of creating safety concerns for some number of patients. This is clearly the FDA's job to do, so in that sense they are uh, earning their salary. But also I would offer that it is clearly our job as companies and in the industry and as professionals working in this industry to do as well via post-market surveillance. And regrettably, Sean, as I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit more today, post-market surveillance is not something that we as an industry have done a great job on in the past. Right. All right, so with that said, uh, can you identify or has the FDA identified um, specific materials or certain material areas where they're going to target or make the first... uh, you know, uh, review areas or review materials for this process? It's a great question, Sean, and uh, the short answer is yes. And the materials that FDA is that is um, targeting, to use your word, is 100% predictable. You don't need to know anything about biomedical engineering or biomaterials. All you have to do is look at the press and see which devices have been uh, in the press causing problems in the materials that they're, they're made out of. So in no particular order, FDA is starting with uh, some of the metals like nitinol, for example. FDA has announced, in fact, a new draft guidance that's in the works uh, specifically for nitinol. I just want to point out to our audience, Sean, that this is a continuation of a trend that I've seen for the last several years, and that is more and more technology-specific guidances, uh, which, to be honest with you, as a biomedical engineer, I am not a fan of. You know, right now people are talking about a nitinol guidance. Does that mean in the future we're going to have a stainless steel guidance and a silicone guidance and a polyurethane guidance? And In other words, a specific guidance for every material out there? Gee, I hope not, John, because that's going to make the regulatory world even more uh, more more paperwork than than what we have today. Mm-hmm. Another of the of the materials that they're focusing on, really a device uh, type of device, is the metal on metal hip implants. Something that I know that you're very familiar with. These are, of course, no longer sold in the U.S., but we've got thousands and thousands of people still walking around with them. And we have a growing amount of evidence to suggest, I don't think anybody can can dispute this, that in some of these patients, they have an an elevated level of cobalt and chromium uh, in their blood. Uh, And that's problematic, not just to these patients, but that's problematic to our industry because we now have more than a billion dollars that have been paid out in settlements to date as a result of this one particular uh, class of devices. Silicone breast implants, of course, everybody knows the silicone breast implants have been around for decades, and yet they continue to cause problems, and the, the, the number of problems has increased in terms of contracture, rupture, uh, and perhaps most problematic is there's a, a breast implant-associated form of cancer that's been associated with, uh, uh, with textured 
uh, surface implants, a much higher rate than with smooth surface implants, which to me as a biomedical engineer is particularly um, interesting because it's not just simply a material issue. It's also a mechanical issue. And then finally, uh, we have the animal-derived materials, an area that I work on an awful lot. Uh, for example, materials that are based on collagen or other kinds of proteins. Clearly, these are the future. You know, as we've talked about before, Sean, the, the future of the medical device industry is not to continue to put metals and polymers like urethane or Dacron into patients, but right. more natural materials. So just last month, FDA issued a quote-unquote final guidance, and again, this is absolutely not final, on medical devices that are containing materials derived from animal sources. Um, the problem with that particular guidance, Sean, is that there's absolutely nothing new in there. FDA is addressing problems like disease transmission, for example, uh, that we've known about for decades. You know, after all, porcine heart valves, um, uh, heart valves that are obtained from, from pigs or bovine valves from cows have been around right. for decades. So what's new here? But the thing that's important to remember is um, these devices and these materials have been in use for a long time, but uh, that, that means that we have a responsibility both as an industry as well as FDA to keep an eye on them in the form of post-market surveillance and to make adjustments as we learn more information. Okay, great. Uh, I want to jump back to just one thing you brought up during the night and all portion, and that was the technology-specific guidance. And I wasn't sure if I heard you or if you clarified this uh, or if it was just me, but uh, are you saying that the FDA already has technology-specific guidances for certain materials like nitinol, or there's a discussion of introducing those? No, good question, and I apologize if I was not clear on that point, so let me try to clarify. So there are examples of uh, technology-specific guidances across the medical device industry. The particular guidance that I was referring to here is this uh, draft guidance that is still under development. As far as I know, it has not been publicly released. Now, I have to be a little bit careful what I say here because as an SME for biomaterials for the FDA, I'm often asked to review draft guidances before they're um, released to the public. And so as far as I know, that particular guidance has not been released. But my question that I was raising is a, a little bit more of a rhetorical question, and that is, um, do we need, do we want a specific guidance for every different material that's out there? You know, I mentioned right. a moment ago the ISO 10993 standard for biocompatibility. That applies to materials across the board. That does not specifically call out for nitinol or Dacron or urethane or something like that. That's what I meant by more technology or, in this particular case, more, more device, uh, sorry, more material-specific guidance. Right. Okay. Yeah, that definitely clarifies it. Um, all right, so getting back to the uh, to this you know this letter, this announcement, uh, do you expect or has the FDA said whether or not they would ban certain materials if they didn't meet a certain criteria or have too high of an incidence of reactions among patients? Yeah, it's an interesting qu uh, question, Sean. In a sense, they already do. And that is uh, that uh, a company cannot use a material in a medical device until they've they've proven it, 
right? They've proven it to be safe and effective and so on. So right. uh, they, they already uh, ban materials. In other words, you can't use a material until you, you prove it. That makes sense. I think the gist of your question is, do we want to create a list of banned materials? Um, uh, materials, for example, that have been shown in the past to be problematic. And again, right. there are advantages and disadvantages to everything, Sean. But in my opinion, the short answer is no, because it really depends on the situation. In other words, in some applications, one particular material should not be used. But in another application, that particular material uh, is perfectly fine. And this is not unique to the medical device world, John, or to the, to the material world. The same thing happens in drugs. You know, uh, a certain use of a drug uh, for, for one particular indication might be problematic, but for another, uh, it will be perfectly fine. So I have a real problem. This is just my personal opinion. I have a real problem with uh, the, the um, regulation micromanaging what I, as a biomedical engineer, want to do. In other words, I should be able to use any material that I think is going to do the job for me is, uh, in that particular application as long as I can prove that it's going to do it and it's going to do it safely and effectively and so on and so on. So um, I think the short answer to your question, Sean, is will we see a banned list of materials in the future? Perhaps uh, it would be an easy solution, but I personally do not want to see that. I think that would create actually many more problems than it would solve. And uh, but at the same time, I will say that you could, you can if if what if your statement earlier in the in the in this podcast is true, and that is is this really just more of a reaction to, uh, you know the uh, the bleeding edge and the the bad press that the FDA and the industry has gotten? It's very easy to hold up a list and say, hey, we've we've done work, we've banned these materials; they can no longer be be used. So be happy and and be glad that we've actually, you know, put forth patient safety. And I mean, that's a very easy thing to point to. So if that is the response, then I, I could certainly see it being something that ultimately happens. You're exactly right, Sean. It's an excellent point. And regrettably, I have to agree with you 100%. What you're describing here is the influence of politics in regulation and in medicine. And again, I would be the first to admit that that would be an easy response to create. You know, just take, for example, a list of the materials that, were, uh, that are made of the devices that were featured in some of these, um, these negative press uh, portrayals of our industry and use that to build our banned material list. That would be very easy to do, and that would be very easily, easy for the politicians at FDA to go back and see, say, see, we're justifying our salaries because you know, we're preventing these problems from happening in the future. My response to that as a biomedical engineer is, what is the opportunity cost of, what, of, of those materials that, those, that you're banning? In other words, if you just ban a material universally because it has a problem being used in one part of the body, for example, that means that I now can not use it in another part of the body where it might be perfectly fine and in fact it might even work better than other material selections that I have. So I'm a big fan, Sean, of uh, doing what makes sense from a biology and engineering perspective um, and not creating these arbitrary regulations that, that um, you know, single out, you know, that, that basically try to, to solve a problem by throwing the baby out with the bathwater. 
In other words, take, for example, the, the silicone breast implant. You know, silicone has been known to be problematic for a long, long time. Does that mean that we should ban silicone across the board? Some people might say yes. In me, you know, using silicone, for example, in a catheter is perfectly fine. Using silicone in other applications is perfectly fine. That's the problem right. that we run into with, with universal regulation like this. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're 100%, 100% correct. Um, so ultimately, it, you know, may, and this may call for your opinion or, or you know, your thoughts on this rather than an actual something to point to, but will this, uh, will this action, will this uh, announcement lead to a regulatory pathway for the approval of materials for medical device manufacturing? Well, it's a, it's a great question, Sean, and, and, and you're right. It does call for my opinion, and, you know, but I have no problem sharing my opinion. Um, <laughs> I, I, I often like to say I'm an expert in one thing, and that is my opinion, and then that I know more than anybody else. Uh, but you know this, you know, you're an expert in your opinion, so having a conversation right. like this That's is a great right. place to start. So in terms of the answer to the question, will this lead to a regulatory pathway for, uh, for materials? Um, in short, I don't don't know, but I certainly hope so, because this is something that I've called for for a very long time. It will make the job of industry a lot easier. However, uh, and, and for those that are not familiar with the idea, um, in a nutshell, um, it would be creating a pathway to get like a 510K or a de novo or a PMA or something like that, not on a device itself, but rather on a material that you could then use to put in a variety of different devices. So I have no problem creating a pathway, a regulatory pathway for materials, as long as we have uh, a number of caveats on them. In other words, it cannot be, as we talked about a moment ago, Sean, it cannot be universal approval for a biomaterial. It has to be contingent on the application, on the intended use, on the portion of the body. For example, and I have to be very careful what I say here. I have a number of friends that work in the, in the agency and in some cases actually former graduate students of mine that work in the agency. One of them recently shared a line that that person was uh, a little bit concerned about and they sent it to me to get my quick, quick take. And uh, the line had to do with the implant's location may be contributing to its potential to cause an immune or an inflammatory response. In other words, if we put a material, for example, under the skin, it might uh, behave differently. The body might respond to it differently than if we put it in contact with the blood, for example. And I said right. to my former graduate student, I appreciate why you're sharing this with me because to me, this is a statement of the obvious. And anybody, and this is, might sound a little harsh to some people, Sean, but anybody that doesn't know that, quite frankly, shouldn't be working in this business. So right. obviously we cannot say polyurethane is approved across the board. You can use it for whatever you want. That's the, that's the fear that I have that some people who don't have the knowledge of engineering and biology, they might interpret this. But other than that, you know, I think that having some sort of an approval pathway, whatever you want to call it, for materials, um, you know, it has some potential advantages that we as an industry should discuss with the FDA. Well, now let me, let me pose this counter to you, and perhaps it's a little devil's advocate, but given the propensity of the industry to favor the easiest pathway 
or the, the path of least resistance to getting a device to market through the regulatory pathway, would having a, an FDA-approved material list for specific applications ultimately limit the material selection process by these companies to only those materials that are approved for a certain application? Well, it's a great question, Sean, and I appreciate you playing devil's advocate because that's one of the most important jobs that I have as a regulatory consultant, and that is to do exactly that, to play devil's advocate. So I welcome the opportunity for somebody else to do it, to play the bad guy. <laughs> but I would argue, Sean, that in fact that's the system that we have right now anyway because even though we do not have a database of FDA uh, approved materials or we don't yet have a regulatory pathway to approve a material, we do have a laundry list of what I call FDA-friendly materials. And an FDA-friendly material is nothing more than code speak for a material that has a long history of use. And so basically, if a medical device company has a choice between developing a new medical device out of a new material versus a new medical device out of an existing or an FDA-friendly material, uh, I think, Sean, most people are probably going to agree that 99 times out of 100, the company is going to choose the new device out of the existing or bio, uh, bio uh, sorry, FDA-friendly material because it's easier. We just point to the, to the track record of that material and then we're done. As opposed right. to if we go with a new material, now we have to validate not just the device but the material as well. And now you're talking about additional time and money. And so in a sense, Sean, we already have that system right now. Right, right. And not to mention that with an FDA uh, material approval process, it's going to be in these material suppliers' best interest to get as many different materials they, they are producing out there to be approved by the FDA. And that actually removes the step for the manufacturer because then they don't have to – if it's FDA-approved material, then they're all set. That's exactly right. And taking that a step further, Sean, from a material supplier suspect, uh, perspective, I can certainly envision a scenario where if we were to create, say, a, um, uh, a, 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 some approval process, a, approval mechanism for a material, then a material supplier may invest the time and money to do that, and then they can go to their potential customer and say, hey, we've already uh, got uh, FDA approval for our particular material if you use it in the following applications. Therefore, you don't have to jump through those hoops with the FDA, and as a result, we can charge you more as a material supplier uh, because we've already done some of that heavy lifting for you. So I think if we set it up, Sean, this can be a win-win all around if we set it up right, properly. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, if, uh, if you're going to make the, the pathway easier for companies, they're, they're definitely going to be interested. So Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this, uh, this episode. Uh, thanks for joining us, as always. Uh, if this topic uh, you know, comes up again or there's any significant movement from the FDA, any significant announcements, uh, we'll definitely look to cover it in the future. But until then, uh, for Mike Drews, this is Sean Fenske signing off. We'll speak to you next time.